it's, it's definitely a blessing um, to be able to spend time in the Word of God. And um, always the burden is there when we dwell into the Word of God and to preach His Word, uh, that we preach His Word alone and nothing else. And that is my prayer today. And again, like last, <clears throat> last uh, week, my apologies. Um, my cough still remains, uh, and it's a bit worse now. So I'll try my best not to cough, because every time I cough, it hurts my lungs. Um, keep me in prayer. I am planning to go to the clinic right after the sermon. Um, but nonetheless, uh, the word of the Lord must be preached. Uh, let's just pray. Father, we, we thank you, O Lord God, for you are a gracious God. And every time, O Lord, we go through life, we understand the frailty of our body. We understand the frailty of this life. But we are reminded a lot of uh, the fact that our life doesn't end here, that there's eternity, and that there is um, a future that is much more brighter than the one that we have here. What we see, we see dimly. And we pray, Father, that as we get into your word, that we would open up our hearts, that we would be able to hear your word and your word alone. Uh, in Jesus Christ's precious and holy name. <clears throat> so last week, we had the opportunity to go over, you know, the following aspects of sin. You know, how it explains the human dilemma. Where did it originate from? What is the nature of sin? We were able to understand the problem that plagues this world and all that exists on it. We were able to understand that the one thing that prevents us from the one goal of humanity, which is to know God and to have a relationship with Him and to worship Him, and that one thing is sin. It is the one thing that comes between all relationships on earth and in heaven. It is the one thing that destroys us from within. And the ultimate and severest consequence of sin is death. Because the Bible says that the wages of sin is death. Romans 6, verse 23. This not only refers to physical death, but to eternal separation from God in hell. It says, but your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. It's in Isaiah 59, verse 2. This is the foremost consequence of man's rebellion against God. Yet many want to believe that God is so loving that he will overlook our little faults, our lapses, our indiscretions, little white lies, <coughs> cheating on the tax return, taking the pen when no one is looking, or secretly viewing pornography. These are not things that are worthy of death, right? We say the problem is sin is sin, big, big or small. Though God loves us, His holiness is such that He cannot live with evil. You know, I had a, a conversation a few weeks ago with one of my co-workers, and we were on the topic of, hey, you know, what happens to people after they die? And he had made a, a statement that reflects the thoughts of quite a few people. He, he stated... <clears throat> that he could not believe in people going to hell and being there for eternity. He said, no one deserved that. That even Hitler, no matter how vile he was, didn't deserve that. And his reasoning was this. 
And it got me by surprise. And eternity is a very, very, very long time. You see, that's just an immense judgment to be laid on anyone. You see, the, the fundamental problem here is the lack of understanding of the holiness of God. That's our problem, who God is. And we covered that a few weeks ago, the holiness of God. And, and if you don't have an understanding, it's a flawed perspective. You know, even when I talk to some of you here, there, there, there seems to be a, a different camps. Sometimes we just love to focus on the love of God, the love of God. And I kind of fall in that, on that, in that camp. I want to focus on the love of God. There's nothing else. That's the attribute that I want to focus in on so much. But you know what? The prophet Habakkuk describes God this way. Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrong. God does not ignore our sin. On the contrary, it says in Numbers 32, you may be sure that your sin will find you out. Even those secret sins we hide in the recesses of our hearts will one day be brought to light. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. From Genesis all the way to Revelation, you can see, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. It doesn't say lovely, 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 or loving, loving, loving is the Lord God Almighty. Holy, 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 thrice holy is the Lord God Almighty. It is an emphasis that is placed. God hates sin because it is the antithesis of his nature. It is so contrary to who he is. The, God, the, the psalmist describes God's hatred of sin this way. For you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness. No evil dwells with you. God hates sin because he's holy. Holiness is the most exalted of all his attributes. And as much as scripture talks about God's holiness and about God's love and about sin, it highlights for us the salvation that God has for us. And that's the beauty of it. We see this truth reflected in John 3, verse 16 to 21. It says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the Holy Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it might be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. It is through Jesus Christ that God has freed us from the bondages of sin and has made us slaves of righteousness. Sin does not have the final say, brothers and sisters. God does. God does. You see, the moment we trust in God, we repent and believe in the gospel that he has provided for us, we are made his children. We are granted eternal life. We are made heirs with Jesus Christ. And at that very moment in time, 
there is a war that breaks out within us. A great, immense battle that rages on throughout our lives and is raging in you at this very moment in time. This is what I want to bring to light today and focus on today. This is the topic. Do not let sin reign in you. Do not let sin reign in you. If you could turn to Romans chapter 6, verse 11 to 14. This is what it says. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. Now this passage here is connected with believers. It isn't in relationship with those who are unbelievers or not redeemed. Paul goes ahead of us and paints for us the battle scene that is at this very moment raging. So let's look at this closely. You know, John Piper used this illustration, and I believe it's a great one, because this is what Paul is trying to describe to us, a battle scene. (coughs) In verse 12, there are three things that are described to us. It states, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. There's a throne or a reign described here that the challenger, sin, is trying to reign over. The stronghold that sin is trying to reign over is our mortal body. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. We also see in verse 12 that there are servants in the castle or the stronghold who may go over to the enemy's side and be converted to the enemy agents to be enemy agents of sin inside the stronghold. And these are the desires. It says, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. And there is an incremental surrender possible in this conflict. The obedience of disloyal desires. In verse 13, we see who Paul states is the true king who ought to be on the throne reigning over the castle. It is God. He says, do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. We see that in verse 13, there are weapons or instruments in the castle that can be used to advance the cause of the true king. God or the cause of the pretender to the throne, sin. These are the members of your body the parts of your human body. These can be used for righteousness or for unrighteousness. So we see how the enemy does battle. (coughs) Sin is the enemy, the rebel, the pretender to the throne. And the main way sin does battle against us is to turn servants into traitors. It turns servant desires into conspirators against the throne. Desires which were appointed by God to serve us like desire for food, desire for drink, desire for sex, desire for rest, desire for friends, desires for approval, are attacked by sin and captured and converted and corrupted and turned into betrayers. Then these desires, now in the service of sin, 
they serve sin instead of God, lure us to obey them. When that happens, we give over our members, our eyes, our ears, our tongues, our hands, our feet, our sexual organs, etc., et to serve these desires and their master sin. And our members become weapons of unrighteousness when they were to be instruments of righteousness. So how does sin succeed in, at this? How do the desires that he captures, how, how do the desires that he captures and, and, and turns them into, into betrayers, turns them into slaves of sin? They do this by making obedience to these sinful desires seem very rewarding. They lie to us with half-truths. It'll feel good. Obeying sinful desires does feel good, but, but, uli, for a short time. Then later comes the misery. Then later comes the destruction. That's why Hebrews 11 verse 25 refers to the fleeting pleasures of sin. These sinful desires are very deceitful. Ephesians 4.22 says that our old man is corrupted by the desires of deceit. 1 Peter 1.14 refers to the desires of your former ignorance. So you see, sin takes our desires and makes liars out of them. They promise satisfaction and happiness, and they deliver cheap, fleeting, shallow stimulation that leaves us less content and less peaceful and less hopeful and more guilty, more restless, more discouraged, more enslaved. In the end, if we don't fight the way this text tells us to, we may be cut out from God in hell. And that's why Romans 6 verse 21 says, the outcome of those things is death. And that's why in 1 Peter 2 verse 11 says, abstain from fleshly desires which wage war against the soul. There is a war for the soul going on. Sin is fighting for the throne of your soul. It is using your desires as betrayers, and it is turning your members into weapons of unrighteousness. Now, just in case, now just in case you have in your mind only the so-called gross sins like drunkenness or fornication or adultery or stealing or murder, we had to remember to keep this in mind. The book of James says the most deadly member of our body, the most deadly weapon of unrighteousness is the tongue. The tongue. It says, so also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird of reptile and sea can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. This is James chapter 3, verse 5 to 8. This is what happens when sin perverts our desires so that we present our tongues to these sinful desires as a weapon of unrighteousness. What a weapon of destruction it can be. You know, <clears throat> Proverbs 17, verse 28, it says, Even a fool who keeps silent is considered wise. When he closes his lips, he is deemed intelligent. 
Proverbs 12, verse 18. There is one whose rash words are like sword thrusts, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. You see, here's a perfect example of how, though the tongue can be used to much danger, in terms of righteousness, it can be used to heal. Now, don't go around the church searching the church, trying to identify people who throw around a lot of swords, but examine yourselves. Examine yourselves. It is easier to think about others when, in fact, we ought to be looking inwards. So I'm going to give you a battle strategy to fight sin. And it is for everybody here, not just for someone you might point your finger at. So the first fundamental strategy here is one. You must remember the gospel truth in which your faith stands. You must remember the gospel truth. Christ died for your sin. You died and arisen with Christ, and God has justified us. Romans 5, verse 8 to 10 states, But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Scripture also says we died and rose with Christ. Romans 6 was 6. Our old self was crucified with him. And we have died with Christ in Galatians 2 verse 20. Scripture goes on to say, God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. God counts our sins as punished in Christ and Christ's righteousness as credited to us. This is the fundamental difference between Christianity and any of the religion out there. This is the first strategy. And don't ever skip this. If you do, Satan will defeat you with a hopeless and guilty conscience. Remember the gospel. Remember the gospel truth in which your faith stands. And secondly, it says, uh, the second strategy is going to be, you must consider yourselves dead to sin. That's what it says in Romans 6 verse 11, the first verse we read. <clears throat> it states, you, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. The word consider here is something we do with our reason and our will. It's a mindset. You have to grasp the truth about the gospel and the truth of how we are dead to sin and count it to be true because it is true. Know yourself this way. You died and you rose with Christ. Notice that the deadness of, you know, to sin and the life to God is in Christ. You know, Paul is still amazingly at the objective level of what is true outside of yourself. He's pointing you still to a reality about you that is objective and external to yourself. In the strategy of verse 11, he says, your death to sin and life to God is not yet something in experience. Paul is saying, first, you have to bring your mind and heart in alignment and all, the, all that objective reality in that first step. You've got to know the truth. And then you've got to live it. You've got to live it. This is who you are. You know, we say we're seated in the heavenly places. We have an inheritance. We are heirs. We say a lot of this. 
We know the knowledge, but we got to hold true to it. Live life in that truth. It is one thing to have the knowledge. It is another thing to know yourselves as such, that I am dead to sin. Three, say no and choose God. This is where we're going to go head to head with temptation. When sin sends you a sinful desire to tempt you to present your members as weapons of righteousness, unrighteousness, prefer another ruler, God. You cannot say no until you've embraced the past two steps. You cannot say no if you don't have the gospel truth ingrained in your mind. You cannot say no if you don't live it like you're dead to sin. You cannot say no. And we must say no when sin attacks with the sinful desire of lust. We say no. When he attacks with the sinful desire of covetousness, we say no. When he attacks with the sinful desire of alcohol or nicotine or marijuana or crack cocaine, we say no. When sin attacks with the sinful desire of retaliation or gossip, we say no. No. Choose to say no. I want to use my eyes to see God's truth instead of wasting my sight on things that are of no benefit eternally. I want to use my words to heal people rather than stab them or sometimes not to use them because it might be the best thing to do. I want to use my ears to hear God's word and truth rather than hear the gospel gossip of many a people around. I want to use my God-given sexual desire within the context of marriage to bring about godly offspring rather than be satisfied by the fleeting and perverse pleasures outside of it. I want to use my hands to be charitable or to serve instead of buying the next shiny toy or the most costly materialistic item out there that the world has to offer, and then to watch one of my brothers and sisters in Christ suffer financially. I want to use every member of my body as instruments of righteousness rather than weapons of unrighteousness. And though I know there might be times I may fail, I know God has justified me and will continue to sanctify me and one day transform my lowly body to be like Christ's glorious body. So just like Paul appeals in this very book, Romans, in chapter 12, verse 1, he says, you know, I appeal to you, therefore, brother, brothers, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Which is your spiritual worship. You know, you know summertime is coming around. If it, are we in summer already? Is it still spring? <laughs> uh, you know, and we make all these items and to-do lists in the home. Oh, I got to rake my backyard and I got to do whatever plant stuff. I'm bad at this, the lawn stuff. So anyways, you know, do the driveway, fix the doorknobs, uh, you know, paint the walls, get the barbecue, uh, you know, out. And, and, and we make a lot of these things to do. And it's funny because I did one a few days ago. <laughs> and, 
And it struck me how, why is it that we don't look at our mortal bodies, our stronghold, this body that God has given us, in which God resides and says, let me analyze myself in every sphere and understand what needs to be worked on. Do it in private. Take a Google Doc. Take a piece of paper. Pray. And I can guarantee you, because Scripture says, if you say you're, you don't have sin in you, it's a lie. You do. And as I preach, I don't think there's anyone that's holier than anyone else. We're struggling. But take a piece of paper out. Pray. Write these down and say, how am I going to tackle these sins in our life? You know, when you have a, 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 an item in your home that you have to do that's going to require effort, hey, I'm going to call someone to help me out. Reach out. We're here to build one another up. And we are frail. And there's no hiding that. But call, you know, the call that is laid in our lives is to not let sin reign over our mortal bodies, to not have these godly desires that God has given us to be perverted and to be used as sinful desires in such a way that we use our body to, to move the agenda of the sin for one. But that we can use our bodies to glorify and do acts of righteousness. To speak righteous things. To think righteous things. I pray that we would challenge ourselves and that we would not just take, you know, the sermon, say, wow, you know what, cool, go home and forget about it. Because it's the word of God. You can go home and read it, Romans chapter 6. In fact, read the whole of Romans. It's like, it's, oh my goodness, it's crazy. It's intense. It's beautiful truth. You want to know God? Read it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, oh Lord God, for the truth that you have laid before us. That we are redeemed people. That we are a justified people. But we also know that we are a people that are, that's being sanctified. And you have said that we will be sanctified because there is going to be a day of glorification, O oh Lord, that when we will be gotten rid of this body and have a, and a body like Christ. And we pray, Father, that, that we may deal with these sinful desires the way your scripture has asked us, that we would not forget the gospel truth, that we would live a life that we are dead to sin, that we would know ourselves as such and not just have the head knowledge, that we would walk around as redeemed people, as justified people who are dead to sin, that we can look at the face of these sinful desires and say no, no, no. And yes to the things of righteousness. Yes to good works. Help us, Father. We need your help. And we know, Father, at this point in time that you have given us the strength our sinful nature was crucified on that cross. It is but weak, yet it's not going to go down without a fight. We pray, Father, that as we go into the weeks, as we go into the months, that we would look into ourselves in prayer and we would live the truth that you have set forth before us. We pray, O oh Lord, that you continue to have your hand on this gathering that we would love your word, that we would truly seek your face, seek to know you through your word, 
that we wouldn't just sing songs that ask us to open our eyes, but that we would actually intentionally seek you out in your word, for you are near. Thank you, Father, for the, for the big, big sacrifice of your Son, the sacrifice that has redeemed us. We thank you for our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, for it is in his name that we are prayed. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.